Um, but it's great to be together this morning. Uh, we are carrying on through our Exodus journey. And um, let me kick off by, by putting a... Do you guys know those scenes in movies where a character will um, either give a big speech or, or say something or give some profound advice, and then it, it cuts immediately to the opposite thing happening. And so, um, so I, I'm getting familiar with Peppa Pig. I don't know if you guys know Peppa Pig, but I have an 18-month-old, so Peppa Pig is, is around the house. It's a cartoon thing. Um, and in one scene, Daddy Pig is talking about how the necessity of having good balance and making sure that you are on top of things. And then split second later, Daddy Pig trips on something, and he falls down a hill, and he bashes into a tree, and something else falls on his head, and the whole thing, uh, you know, goes haywire. I think we all know those scenes. I have a great one from my childhood, which is not a scene, but my, my friend um, saying something, and it's never left me. And so the scene was this. Um, I grew up on a farm, and we must have been 11 years old. A bunch of my friends came out to the farm for the weekend, and we thought, um, let's just go be men together in the bush. So let's take Kyle's hunting knife. Let's grab the baseball bat. Let's go and steal um, dad's gun. Um, and let's go off for the evening together on an adventure to, I mean, who knows what the actual plan was. But we did all these things. I did get in trouble for the gun next morning. But anyways, um, we were basically mimicking one of those, like, you know, get ready for the mission scenes, essentially. So we were in my room. I remember this. And everybody was, like, suiting up, getting backpacks. We, the, the one guy brought dumbbells in the backpack. I'm not sure what his plan was. I still remember this. And then he tripped and fell into cow dung with dumbbells on his back. I'll never forget that. But anyways, everyone was suiting up for the mission. And my one mate, I'll never forget it, he had the baseball bat. And he was just casually swinging it as we were all getting ready. And for whatever reason, he decided to take this moment to be like, do you know what, guys? I think the four of us here are probably the most intelligent guys in the class. This was his gap to say this. The moment he finishes the sentence, he smacks himself in the knee with the baseball bat, falls to the ground, and is just screaming in pain. And it was the perfect example. One of the most intelligent guys in the class, bah, down on the floor. Essentially, that's, that's what we have today in our, in our story in Exodus. We have one of those moments where a speech is sort of given. Everyone is expected to go in this direction, and, and something else um, happens, which is just not what you're expecting. So for those of you who are joining us in the story so far, um, what's happened is the people of God have been in slavery in Egypt. God has freed them from here, and they're on the way to the promised land where God's going to set them up to be a light to all the nations so that the whole world could ultimately see who God really is and be reconciled to Him because humanity had gone their own way. So that's where they're, that's where they're going. Um, they would have just received the Ten Commandments as a sort of um, covenant institution, as this is who you are, this is who you're going to be, these are, the, these are what the, the, the terms of our covenant relationship between God and His people were going to be. Um, and in, in Exodus chapter 24, the people have a glorious moment where not only does God say, these are the commands, but all the people together say, we will obey. We love this law and we will obey. And so Moses goes back up to the mountain to receive some more instructions about how to build the tabernacle, which Drew is going to unpack uh, next week in our last time together in, in Exodus. Um, it, but it's going to be God's way of being able to dwell with his people. So Moses goes up to the mountain to get these instructions you know, God's going to present himself with his people. There's been a beautiful a law given to them of how they're going to live in covenant relationship with him. Everyone's saying yes. Meanwhile, back at the camp. Meanwhile, back at the camp. Let's read. And we're going to read a lengthy passage here from Exodus 32. And this is, this is that beautiful scene where we're the most intelligent guys in the class. That's what's happening here. So, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain... The people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, 
Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are on the ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned with it a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, today shall be a feast to Yahweh. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, who's still up on the mountain at this point, go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshiped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff necked people. Now, therefore, let me be alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation out of you, Moses. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Hello. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, the Ten Commandments, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there's a noise of war in the camp. But he said, it is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to a powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, that they are set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. So I said to them, let anyone who have gold take it off. And so they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, thus says the Lord God of Israel, put your sword on your side, each of you. 
and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son or of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The next day Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord, perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people have sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot, blot out of my book. But now, go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people, because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. So it's a lengthy story, um, but it felt like we needed to hear the whole thing, because there's so much in here, and we're not even going to cover um, everything, unfortunately. But I mean, we have a story of hope before we arrive at this scene. The people um, have been free. They're on their way to the great, the great promised land. And it absolutely turns to tragedy in this scene on so many levels. And the reason for that is idolatry. Idolatry, Drew mentioned it earlier. Idolatry is something we can all be capable of doing. It is essentially setting up a created thing as God, as ultimate. So Romans 1 talks about idolatry being the fact that all human beings, in some shape or form, uh, worship created things rather than the creator, God. That's what idolatry is. And we all do it. We all substitute things for the one true God. And so the question I want all of us, whoever you are, whether you're a Christ follower at this point in your life or not, I'd love you to just bank this question in the back of your head and maybe you can think through it as we go. And the question is this, uh, what are the things that we substitute God for? What are the things that we substitute God for in our lives? Just keep it in the back of your head, because uh, through today's passage, through this time together, I do believe God is reaching out to each one of us in this room in love to rescue us in the way that he rescues the people of, of Israel, and that's what he wants to do. In love, he wants to come down and help us today. He wants to intervene in our lives, but it's important that we acknowledge um, who we are, where we find ourselves. And the bottom line is, as you can see in the story, and we'll get there, if you worship something that is created, that means it has a shelf life, firstly, but regardless, for a whole bunch of reasons, it will end in tears. It will end in tears because it will pass away, it will fail you, it will steal so much from you and not give anything back. But for a whole bunch of reasons, worshiping created things rather than the creator God will result in tears. And that's what we're going to explore today. And so here's the three things we're going we're gonna to look at. Why do we make idols? Why did the people of Israel make idols here? Why do we make idols out of all sorts of things? What do idols do to us? And then, great typing from me there, um, what, what does God do about it? <laughs> what, what does God do about it? Clearly, I, 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 I wasn't doing so well there when I wrote that, so I'll have to go back and fix that for tonight. Sorry, AMers. Um, why do we make idols? What do idols do to us, and what does God do about it? So let's just jump in here. Why we make idols? Why we make idols? Here's five things which I think you'll see in the text that lead the people of Israel and therefore lead us, 
people who love God, worship God, to end up worshiping other things from time to time. The first is this, is distrust. Distrust. That's one of the main things you see in the story here. When we stop trusting God, uh, and we stop trusting that He knows what He's doing, and that He's got a plan, and that He's with us, and He's for us, and He's not against us, when we stop trusting that, we make room for idols in our lives. And as I said, the immediate context of, of this story is a little earlier, after, before Moses went back up onto the mountain, where the people of God say, yes, this is what we're going to do. We are going to follow and worship you, and we're going to obey these commands. But then Moses goes up to the mountain, and he's up there for 40 days. That's what, something like six, six weeks. And the people of Israel find themselves in a space where they obviously they have an invisible deity. Yahweh is not a visible force. And so in many ways, in their minds, they find themselves with no God, in their minds, and no guide, Moses in physical form, the person who has led them so far. And so they get impatient. They get impatient with God, and they get impatient with Moses. They're impatient with his timing, and so what happens is they decide to take matters into their own hands. We've all, we've, there's stories like this consistently throughout the Bible. We see it in our lives. And we see the distrust here is not actually just directed at God, but it's actually in many ways also directed at Moses. I mean, they say things like, like, like uh, who knows what's happened to this guy, even though there's been miraculous provision throughout their lives so far. They abandon it within a few weeks. They have skepticism. They have cynicism towards their leader, towards God. And I think we can identify with them in many ways here. People who, who have an invisible deity, that they, they, they just, and, and now they, their leader's gone, they just need something to hold on to. I don't think we should just dismiss how they get here. They, they want something. They, they, they want a focal point. They want guidance. They want hope. You might say six weeks is a short time. You might say six weeks is a long time. But they've got an invisible deity, and so they need to make, or they want to make, a visible image in order to strengthen themselves, to be the focal point of their community, and something to give them hope. And so that's what they do here when they fashion this golden calf. Now, um, let me just comment on this golden calf here. Um, uh, Michael Heiser, a theologian that I appreciate, and, and, and lots of people agree with him, um, say that even if um, they think they are worshiping Yahweh here, because it's quite an ambiguous scene, are they, because they say they build a golden calf and they say, cool, we're doing a feast to the Lord. So are they worshiping completely other false gods, which it looks like at points they are, or are they worshiping Yahweh just in an interesting way? Michael Heiser says, even if we think they are worshiping Yahweh, and they are desperate, and we understand their fear, in the text itself, what they do is viewed as sinister and viewed as evil. And bulls and images and services like this are held elsewhere in the New Testament, and they're always they always revolve around serving other gods and worshiping other gods. Here's the interesting thing. It also involves dubious sexual acts. That's, what it's, that's what's being alluded to the when it says where they went down to eat and drink and they rose up to play. Every time that little phrase happens is there was a whole bunch of sort of sexual worship acts that were also involved. And so what they're actually doing here is they're violating the first two commandments in any way. Or at least they're definitely violating the second commandment. The first commandment, have no other gods before me. Second commandment, do not make images of other gods or of me. So either way, they're either breaking the first one or they're breaking the second one and, and, or breaking both. But either way, it's not viewed as a positive thing. So distrust leads you and I as well to take matters into our own hands and make 
false gods out of created things in this world. And you can join some dots in your head there, perhaps. Here's the second thing. They're all different lengths and different, and different uh, concepts here. Disregard. Disregard. For God and, and what he's done. So when you and I, when, when we sin, and that's basically what idolatry is. Sin is idolatry. Idolatry is sin. We forget what God has done for us. And that's what happen, has happened here. They've had an amazing track record of God being faithful to them in Egypt, seeing the plagues, seeing the Red Sea parted, seeing provision time and time again where they thought we don't have food, we don't have water, my goodness, the Amalekites are attacking. And they've seen God come to the rescue time and time again and be patient with them and deliver them. But what happens here is they forget that, they return to their wicked ways, worshiping at least some sort of created image here, much like the people of Egypt would have done. And then they revise history. They literally revise history. They say that other gods brought them up out of Egypt. Let's make some things to, to show how other gods have brought us up. They completely disregard either the, track, the objective track record of God in their people's history or in their own lives. And again, you and I do this. You and I do this. We just throw the Bible aside as if it's some, an antiquated thing that yeah, God might have done some stuff there, but it's completely disconnected from my life now. Or in times of stress, in times of feeling isolated with no God or no guide, you and I can completely forget the good things that God has done for us and the times God's been with us. So distrust, disregard, duress. We fall into sin and idolatry when we do what is popular rather than what is right. And that is exactly what happens to Aaron, okay? He's meant to be the leader in Moses' place, helping the people, serving the people, leading the people, influencing the people, and the exact opposite happens. He takes the pressure from the crowds, the pressure from the people. He doesn't fear God, he fears people, and he listens to them and he obeys them, and he does the will of the people rather than the will of God. And so when you and I are under pressure from people around us who don't love the God that we love, or from the culture around us who says, you need to change this and change this and change that and don't trust your God and don't do this. We all feel the very real pressure that Aaron might have felt in that moment. And it'll lead us to idolatry if we're not aware. Fourthly, disobedience. Just simple, good old-fashioned disobedience is what leads them to create idols here, okay? And we all have this, hearts that are drawn towards our own things, towards our own um, desires and our own ideas, and it wasn't just that um, they weren't doing what God told them to do, and it wasn't just that they were doing things that God told them not to do, but they actually are doing things that they themselves said they wouldn't do. They said, Moses, God, your law is good, we are in, and yet they go ahead and they, they break it. And I think many of us know this. It's so easy in our lives to tell God, oh man, I'm never gonna do that thing again. I've seen, I've seen what happens in my life when I, when I do it. I've seen how it affects my relationship with you, how it affects my relationship with others. God, I'm sorry for the sin. I will never do it again. Two days later, five days later, 10 days later, we give into it. Habitual sin is what you can call it. Um, sins of addiction are very much this thing. And it happens in our lives. We, we, we take something again and we end up worshiping it by singing. Yeah. 
Drew said this before here on, on, on a Sunday, once or twice. Maybe he said it several times, but it's a, it's a key phrase. The people have been removed out of Egypt, but Egypt has not been removed out of the people. A golden calf was one of the key sort of gods that the Egyptian people would have worshipped. It was a symbol and a sign of fertility and strength. That's exactly what they're needing right now. They're needing an image of a God who has life and who has strength and who can give them hope. Acts 7, commenting on this passage, says, In their hearts, they turned back to Egypt. They turned back to a time before God had done good things in their life, before God had set them free from slavery. And what this then means is, the fact that they're saying, in their hearts, they turn back to Egypt, you and I all need to do the work of not just identifying the actions in our lives and the sinful things we do or the sinful patterns that we fall into, we need to figure out what the idols are in our hearts. Because we can do a whole bunch of cleanup work out here, which is probably why we end up doing the same thing again and doing the same thing again and doing the same thing again. We need to do the deep work of figuring out what are the things that I deeply love and worship, that I elevate, that I make sacrifices to, that are not God. And what I think I'm going to do, I only thought about it just now, um, and maybe it can be done in life groups, or maybe it can be set up in life groups or something that individuals do afterwards. But Tim Keller, in his course, Gospel in Life, has a fantastic sort of tool for each and every person to sit down and figure out, man, what are the big idols in my life? Comfort. Uh, security, power, money, sex, whatever it is, it's good for each and every one of us to figure these things out, to know the things that we are prone to worship instead of God. Last one, distortion, distortion. What happens is you and I twist what God intends for His glory, and we bend it to our own will. That's exactly what idolatry is. Created things are actually all given to us for our good, for our blessing, to be enjoyed in the right ways. And then what we do is we twist them, we distort them, we elevate them to inappropriate places. And that's when idolatry happens. That's when idolatry happens. And as I said, there's ambiguity in this text here when it's, is it Yahweh being worshipped or is it, um, is it some other gods being worshipped but, 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 um, and they're just going for it? Or are they worshipping Yahweh but just in inappropriate ways? I, I lean more towards that, that side, that they have adapted and adopted po- pagan modes of worship to worship Yahweh. Because, I mean, it's, it's there in the text. Aaron says, we're going to have a feast to the Lord. We're going to have a feast to Yahweh. But what they've done is they've said, we can worship Yahweh. We can worship the God of the Bible and do it in a whole bunch of ways that he's maybe said no to, but, but, but they've justified it in their minds. They've justified it in their hearts. And so they didn't worship God appropriately. They mixed what is true with what is false. The gold that they had been, that they had there, that they used to put in the fire, was the very same gold that they had plundered when they left Egypt. God had had given them a whole bunch of plunder, riches, jewels to take with them out of Egypt. The main reason they would have had that gold, you would have seen in the previous chapters, which Drew will unpack next week, is to build the tabernacle. They were given this gold in order to build a place for God himself to presence himself with his people, to live and dwell with them. And they used the very thing that is meant to be used for the worship of God, and they use it to distort and worship the golden calf. They want a God that enables them to do what they want, essentially. 
So that's why they put this thing here. They want to rise up and play. They want to eat and drink. And this golden calf will allow them to do that. And we can do this all the time. We can justify things in our head under the guise of the worship of God or God just wants me to be happy. I mean, that's a key one. God just wants me to be happy. I'm just no longer in love with my spouse anymore. And there's this other person who I just gel with and click with. And clearly, this marriage is no longer working. And there is chemistry and there is love. And there is something here with this person who's not my spouse. And God just wants me to be happy. Why would God want me to stay in this thing? And so we justify our actions and disobey God. But in our minds, it's not outright disobedience. We might not even consider it disobedience. It's just a distortion that we may or may not be aware of. All of us do this when we use the grace of God and the, the kindness of God as an excuse to sin, right? How many times have either you said it or I said it or have I heard it said, why are we so hectic about sin and fighting sin and putting sin to death? I've been forgiven for my sin. I'm going to heaven. God loves me. And yet Paul has to respond to that very accusation in the New Testament and say, well, then should we sin so that grace may abound even more? And Paul says, no, no, we've been set free from sin so that we don't live in sin. But that's probably one of the key distortions of our age is to say, we've been set free so I can do what I want. And we end up distorting and worshiping our own pleasures, our own appetites, or whatever it might be. We can all use God's name in order to endorse, endorse our agenda, whatever it might be. So, that's why we make idols. That's by far the biggest point. What I want to look at next is, well, what do idols do to us? What do idols do to us? And there's three things. The first thing idols do to us is they demand sacrifice. They demand sacrifice. So you've got it here. They had to take their gold. They had to bring burnt offerings. They had to have celebrations. It sounds like they had sort of orgiastic celebrations around this golden calf, but it demanded sacrifices. And it brings us back to that question right at the beginning. What do we make sacrifices for? That's a helpful guideline to figure out what other things besides God we might be worshiping. For those of us who are Christ followers and, and say, we do worship God, but we know sometimes we, we don't worship Him appropriately. What do we make sacrifices for? What do you sacrifice time, money, relationships, commitments for? What are those things? Because I think that can run rampant in the people of God. I, th I think, and COVID has put this on steroids, although it was always there, we have found a way to sacrifice commitment to the people of God and, and, and worship other things by, by sacrificing this. Whether it's more time at work, whether it's just laziness, a God that we can worship, whether it is other relationships, whatever it might be, what do you sacrifice for? I think the, 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 the command of God's people to gather is something that many of us, and maybe I'm preaching to the converted here, but many of us might be sacrificing for in this time. There are genuine reasons why many of us can't gather in this season, but I think COVID has made it a perfect excuse to easily disregard the ways of God, to worship God. In, we, we do it as well. We do this. I'm, I'm, I'm spending time in nature. That's my way of worshiping God. And so I'm going to sacrifice spending time with the people of God 
to worship God in nature. That's a classic case of the distortion and the disobedience that we saw here. God has laid forth ways that we are to appropriately worship him. Can we encounter God in nature? Totally. But we can totally use that as an excuse to just go have a jaw in nature and not actually worship God appropriately. I hope that makes sense. So we make sacrifices for things. We make sacrifices for things. The flip side of this is that following the true God also does require sacrifice. It does require sacrifice. Jesus on the cross had to sacrifice himself so that we could come home as sons and daughters. Paul in Romans tells us that we are to offer our bodies as living sacrifices to God. It is going to take sacrifice. We are going to lay down dreams, hopes, plans to love and worship God. But we're laying down things that are subpar gods to worship the true God. That's the difference. And unlike idols who just take and take and take, that are like mute golden calves that actually cannot do anything for us, God, on the other hand, is a God who gives and gives and gives. He gives his son to die on our behalf. He gives the Holy Spirit as a down payment and guarantee of our inheritance in the new heavens and the new earth. He gives us brothers and sisters. He gives us freedom from sin. He gives us relationship with him. He gives and he gives and he gives, unlike the false gods that we worship. So idols demand sacrifice and they corrupt the worshiper. Some of you might have heard this, but Human beings become like what they worship. Human beings become like what they worship. That's why in cultures and nations where, where there's clearly a specific deity being worshipped or a specific set of gods that are being worshipped, you will find ideologies and you will find structures that follow to back that up. You think of the idea of reincarnation and you think of the caste system in India. Those, those two things are not just isolated. They go hand in hand. We become like what we worship. And here in the story, God calls the people stiff-necked. He says, I've seen Israel, and they are a stiff-necked people. The phrase stiff-necked is always, throughout the Bible, used to speak of beasts of burden, cattle, bulls, calves, that don't listen to where their masters are sending them to go. They're meant to go this direction to plow this field, and their stiff-necked animal just wants to go this way. Israel are becoming just like the thing that they are worshiping. And it happens all the time. Someone said this, and I thought it was quite funny. If you worship money, you will become shiny, and you will become lifeless. It's so true. It is so true. If you devote your life to the God of money, and you make sacrifices of your children, and of your friends, and of your health in order to lay hold of it, ultimately what happens is, man, you are full of bling, and you got nothing else under the surface. I love that little sentence. And it becomes like a drug. It leads us from one degree of sin to the next. We have to justify what we're doing. It happens with Aaron in this story. Aaron, what in the heck did you just do? We, we were going this way, and you ended up making a golden cup. No, 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 no. The people gave me, they gave me the gold. I threw it into the fire, and the cough just popped out. I mean, I just, Moses, I don't know. I don't know what happened there. He's justifying, he's justifying his sin and completely making up a lie to cover for it. It's exactly what happens. It's exactly what happens. We get corrupted when we do it. 
And lastly, it brings judgment upon us. It brings judgment upon us. When we sin and when we worship false gods, the presence of God is removed from our life. Sorry. If we're Christ followers, we lose an experience of the presence of God. doesn't mean we get kicked out of the family. We're still sons. We're still daughters. But we, we are sent into a sort of mini exile from the presence of God when we sin and we worship other gods. The big story of humanity is that is exactly what happens. For people who don't love and worship God, they are in exile. If that is you, you are currently in exile from the presence of Yahweh, and you need to be brought back into the family. That's what the whole story is about. And sin has consequences. Genesis 3, Romans 1, they say, the wages of sin is death. There will be a spiritual death. There will be a physical death. There will be relational consequences that happen in our lives and personal consequences when we worship other things. Sometimes they're natural consequences. Sometimes God just directly intervenes to punish, never just for the sake of punishing, but to remove what is evil and to open people's eyes to show us that we need help. That's what idols do to us. What does God do about all of this? Because we all find ourselves in these golden calf situations. We all find ourselves trapped either in cycles of sin or recognizing from time to time, hey, I'm actually worshiping this. I think, it, I think it's probably actually happening consistently. And so what does God do about it? Here's a few things before we land. We learn what true freedom is. That's what God is revealing in this story. The people of Israel have been freed from external slavery in Egypt. They were very much under taskmasters. They were under oppression. And our God is a God who hates injustice and he hates oppression. And he is about freeing slaves from captivity. The church of God has been the, the, one of the main vehicles in the world to fight injustice and oppression external oppression, but we also need to be freed from internal things and internal captivity to sin and Satan and idols and the flesh. So the people now, they were enslaved in Egypt. They are now in many ways enslaved to this golden calf, and they need to recognize what God is doing is, is revealing to them that they think they are free, but they are still enslaved. And we need both, friends. We need both. We need removal from external things and internal things. We need, we need salvation from the devil and from the flesh inside of us. We need, we need rescue and liberation from death outside of us that just happens to us, as well as sin that is birthed inside of us. And Jesus in John 8 said this, anyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. But if the Son of God sets you free, you will be free indeed. Anyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. But if the Son of God sets you free, you will be free indeed. So we learn what true freedom is. That's what God's doing for us. The next thing is this, is that we're called to prayer and action. That's what God's doing in the story. We got Moses here as a great example of this. Moses, in many ways in the story, is pushed by God towards prayer, towards intercession, towards action, okay? So Moses doesn't minimize the people's sin, but he, he goes to God and he appeals to God's fatherly affection to, to love these people, to, to help these people. They're his people. God literally says to Moses, these are your people that you brought up out of Egypt. He's kind of distancing himself from them. And Moses literally comes back and says, these are your people who you brought up out of Egypt. 
He puts it back onto God. It's a beautiful example of, of how we are to pray. We are to pray these sorts of things. We pray the, the promises of God and we pray the truth of God. We are your people, God. These are your people. Moses then in prayer appeals to God's past investment. He said, God, you've committed to these people. You've committed to them. You've started something in them and you need to see this through to completion. You've made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He appeals to the public perception. He says, if Egypt get word of this, that you have completely annihilated your people here, which is, which is you know, they're going to misconstrue that. It, it, you might be very justified in doing it, God, but Egypt won't understand, and they'll think this God is crazy. He just saves people from freedom and then just kills them in the wilderness. Moses appeals to God on the basis of merciful compassion. You are a God who is merciful. Relent from your anger, God. Relent from your anger. And then Moses in prayer appeals to the everlasting covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Do not forsake your promises to those people. You have sworn an oath to give their descendants this land. Do it. And then Moses goes down. He's prayed to God. And then Moses goes down as a man of action. He doesn't just pray. He goes down and he confronts Aaron. And all sorts of stuff happens, including Moses saying, we need to put to death the instigators of this uprising. They don't kill everyone but they kill those who were the ringleaders, who were the influencers, who were the instigators. That's what happens in this story. You and I also need to pray just like Moses. That's what God's pushing us towards here. We need to be a people of prayer and we need to be a people of action. We are meant to be a people as individuals who are killing sin in our own lives and as a community who are killing sin corporately together by teaching one another and correcting one another and encouraging one another and loving one another. You and I do not have the power of the sword, okay? That was okay in this time, and if you want to have a conversation with me about how, how is it cool that 3,000 of them were killed, um, I'd love to have that chat with you. Um, we do not have that power. We live in a different epoch. We live in a different situation. What we do have is the power of confession, the power of repentance, and at times the power of church discipline, when, when there are people and instigators in the community who are leading vast numbers astray, and we have to say, you cannot be part of this community anymore. This is the seriousness which, with, with, with which God deals with his people, all for their freedom. Leaders are meant to be part of moving towards sin, not just having a hands-off approach. The last thing that happens here in this story that we reveal here, is that we are invited to lean on Jesus' substitution. Moses comes to God. He prays to him. He says, don't wipe them out completely. He actually even, there's an offer for Moses to be the new people of Israel, for a whole new civilization to, be, to come from him. And Moses said, I don't want that. Don't kill these people. And God actually blot me out instead of them. If, if what it takes to atone for their sin right now is for me to be blotted out then do it. I will gladly sacrifice my life for the people that I love. And what happens in the story is God says no. God doesn't accept Moses' substitution of himself. Why? Because it's not gonna work. Moses, the sinful fallen human being, is not gonna be able to atone for the sins of the people. It's gonna be one person for, for millions, and it doesn't work. 
But you get to the end of this whole section, chapter 33, chapter 34, and you will find that God reinstitutes his whole covenant. They rebuild the, the, the tablets of stone. God rereads the law. They, they, it's, it's basically like renewing your wedding vows after one party has been unfaithful. The whole thing is renewed. Everyone comes back together. God says, I'm gonna be with you. I'm gonna bless you. And you need to ask yourself, how did they get there? How did they get there? How can God do that? How can he renew his covenant after this, this people have completely disregarded it? How can he uphold his justice? Before you get to the end of this story, there's this riddle that happens here in chapter 33. Let me just read it. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. That's a riddle. How does God do both? How does he completely forgive people and punish them for their sin? The answer to that riddle is Jesus substituting himself, doing what Moses tried to do and yet being successful, bringing forth a substitutionary atonement himself on behalf of the people that is accepted by God when Moses was not. And the reason it worked is because Jesus, unlike Moses, was perfect. Jesus, unlike Moses, was sinless. And God was able at the cross to come and have his justice poured out on Jesus, have the wrath and the death that is due sin happen to him, have him conquer sin, conquer death, rise again, and have anyone who trusts in the blood of Jesus, in God's self-substitution, be free and forgiven from their sin. It's a way for God to uphold his justice and for mercy to be upheld. And what God would say to all of us here in this community today is wherever we find ourselves, whatever idols we find ourselves battling with, lean on Jesus. Lean on Jesus. He has broken the power of sin in our lives. He has broken the back of death and the influence of Satan in our lives by his death and resurrection on the cross. Jesus' death reached backwards into the Old Testament. That's how God could pass over all sorts of sins in the Old Testament because they were pointing forward to a time when Jesus would come to die for sins past, present, and future. And for us, we look back on the cross and say, we know God is good. We don't need to just trust God because we've seen his love for us. We don't need to feel the pressure of culture because we know God is for us. Therefore, who can be against us? We need not disobey because we have seen what life truly is and the power of sin and the power of idolatry has been broken in our hearts by Jesus. I'm gonna pray for us and then Drew is gonna uh, close out our time together. Um, so just pray with me off the back of this, this message. Father, we thank you for this story. We thank you for your work in our lives. We thank you, Jesus, for stepping into human history on our behalf, for loving us. Unlike Moses, who, who was temporary, who was a shadow, who could never atone for sin, 
Jesus, you consistently pray for the people that you love. You are right now in the heavens praying for each and every one of us in this room. You were the perfect sacrifice that Moses could never be. You have shown us how God can uphold his justice and display his mercy. God, help us to see how good you are, how trustworthy you are, so that we might not be led into idolatry in our lives. Help us to see that your ways are good and that they lead to life and that it is sin that leads to death so that we might avoid sin and idolatry. God, help us to fear you rather than fearing culture so that we might not, under pressure, yield and become idolaters. Help us to be people of prayer who hold you to your word, to your promises. When you say things to each and every one of us in this room, like, what I have started in you, I will see through to completion. In the times of wrestling and in the times of fighting and dealing with our own flesh and our own desires to pull away from you like stiff-necked people, help us to know the power and the presence of your spirit and your love for us and your goodness towards us. Thank you for this time. Pray this week, God, that you would help us figure out the things in our lives that we worship and help us remove them with the expulsive power of a new affection. Help us so perfectly see you and love you and need you that we recognize we don't want to love and worship and need these other things. Thank you for your spirit. We thank you for your son's death on the cross for us. Amen.